You're listening to American Songcatcher, tracing the roots of American music from its cultured past to today's artist playing it forward. I'm folk musician Nicholas Edward Williams. The infamous North Carolina folk song and murder ballad, Tom Dooley, has a trail of mystique behind it. The song is based off of a true story involving a man named Tom Dula, spelled D-U-L-A, though it's pronounced locally as Dooley, as well as a woman named Laura Foster and some secondary characters. The story has become folklore over the years, and even today there's still debate over what actually happened. Tom was born in what would become the small town of Elkville in Wilkes County, North Carolina in 1844. When Tom was 15, it's unclear why, but he began staying about a mile down the road from where he grew up at a man named James Melton's house with his wife, Anne. She was about the same age as Tom, said to be mesmerizingly beautiful, though she could be domineering and aggressive. James was a relatively wealthy, successful local farmer and cobbler who kept three beds in his single-room cabin. Likely from Anne's doing, James often slept alone. Tom started sneaking into bed with Anne, and when it was clear that Tom and Anne began having an affair, James stayed relatively passive. When the Civil War broke out in 1861, Tom's two older brothers enlisted as Confederates. A year later, Tom followed, volunteering for the 42nd Regiment of the North Carolina Infantry, actually lying to make himself older since he was only 17. Tom's rank changed from private to musician at the beginning of 1864, listed as a drummer who would sound the charge or the retreat during battle. Towards the end of the war, he would be wounded several times in battle, and Tom was captured and held in a Yankee prison for three months. Both of his brothers had died in battle, and a year after the conflict ended in 1865, Tom was released and he went back home to Elkville. In 1866, Laura Foster, one of Anne's first cousins, entered the picture. The folktales have it that Laura was a beautiful girl with chestnut hair and blue-green eyes, and her smile showed distinct teeth that were slightly larger than most others, with a noticeable gap between the two in the front. By the time she was 22, motherless and living with her father, she'd been dubbed as having round heels, an awful local term meaning that she was easy to bed. Tom and Laura began having relations. Often he spent the night with Laura, alternating some nights back to Anne. Things got even more complex when Pauline Foster, Anne and Laura's distant cousin, came to town and was hired as a servant for $21, which is about $300 in today's money, to live at the Melton House, working through the summer. Soon, Tom and Pauline also began having an affair. However, Pauline hadn't moved there just to find a job. She was also seeking medical treatment for syphilis, which she didn't tell anybody about. As one might guess, Pauline then gave the syphilis to Tom, who gave it to Laura, and then he gave it to Anne. After finding out he was infected, Tom visited Laura and they agreed to meet and run away together the next night. She bundled all the clothes that she could carry and snuck out, leaving on her father's horse before sunrise. Around one mile into the six-mile trek, Laura ran into her neighbor Betsy Scott and exclaimed that she and Tom were getting married and she was meeting him in a spot in the woods that the locals called Bates Place. All that is known next is that she was never seen alive again. Sometime after her disappearance, the horse returned with the broken bridle. When the news got out, many people assumed that Laura and Tom had run off together. 
But when they realized that Tom was still in Elkville, noticing that he hadn't been joining the search team, gossip that he'd killed her was stirring. Two days later, the calls for Tom's arrest were spreading around town. When Pauline and Anne were questioned, Pauline caved in and told him that, in fact, Tom had murdered Laura and that Anne had helped him get rid of the body. She showed a new search team that included James Melton and Bob Cummings the spot where the body was buried. One of the searchmen's horses stepped on some loose soil, so they started digging and quickly found a body that had been stabbed in the chest with a knife. The grave was shallow, just four feet long and three feet deep, and a bundle of Laura Foster's clothes were inside. When the investigation of the murder began, Bob Cummings, who ironically was another man that had been courting Laura Foster, claimed that he had found Anne Melton's handkerchief in the grave. Her arrest warrant was issued in addition to Tom's, who had fled to Tennessee. He found a farm owned by Colonel James Grayson and got a job as a field hand, working under the name Tom Hall. After about a week, long enough to earn money for a new pair of boots, he left and walked towards Johnson City. A few days later, the police arrived at Grayson's farm and described Tom. Grayson then joined the search party and shortly after found him in Pandora, Tennessee. Armed, Grayson persuaded Tom to go quietly and he was taken back to stand trial. A local well-known attorney named Zebulon Vance, who also happened to be Tom's sergeant during the Civil War, offered to defend him pro bono, which attracted media attention. During the trial, 81 witnesses gave testimony that was mostly damning for Tom, both having an affair with Ann Melton and Laura Foster. Some explained that Tom thought Laura had given him the pock, or syphilis, and that he'd openly made statements saying he would get whoever gave him the pock. Though he was awarded a new trial on appeal, he was convicted again and charged guilty of murder and sentenced to death by hanging. Local rumors claimed that while Tom was being carted by wagon on the way to the gallows, which was a wood frame structure used for hangings, he sat on his own coffin, playing the banjo, and singing what would become the verses of the song. He even joked around with the sheriff. Had I known that you would use such new, fine rope, I would have washed my neck. While standing on the gallows, just before the trapdoor was released, Tom shouted, Can you see this hand? Can you see it tremble? Can you see it shake? I want everybody to know that I did not harm a single hair on that girl's head. Though the song says that he was hanging from a white oak tree, 22-year-old Thomas C. Dula died on the gallows outside of the courthouse in Statesville, North Carolina, in May of 1868. The night before, Tom wrote, I am the only person that had any hand in the murder of Laura Foster. This confession allowed Ann Melton, who was also being tried, to later be acquitted. The trial received national attention, and journalists from all over came to Statesville to attend the execution. Newspapers such as the New York Times galvanized the story into a folk legend. After his execution, a local poet named Thomas Land wrote a poem called Tom Dooley, which still makes up the brunt of the lyrics today, and local versions of the songs were born. Hang down your head, Tom Dooley, hang down your head and cry. Seventy years later, a man named Frank Prophet Sr. walked eight miles over the mountain and sang Tom Dooley for the song collector Frank Warner, who came to North Carolina in 1938. The song was then published into a songbook in 1947 by folklorist Alan Lomax, who gave credit to Frank Warner. The Kingston trio got wind of the song either from Warner, either from Warner himself or through Lomax's publication and added the song to their set list, then recorded it in 1958 as part of their debut album. 
That version became one of those hit songs where everybody sings along with the chorus. It climbed to the number one spot on the Billboard chart, selling more than six million copies. The story was thrown back into the limelight, which led the American Legion to replace Tom's headstone with a more expensive one, though its etching is two years off from the actual death date. People from all over began visiting the gravesite, and they've been chipping off fragments of the gravestone ever since. Today, about 20% of the stone has been removed and stolen. And the Kingston Trio reportedly did not give credit where it was due, and millions of people assumed that it was their own creation. Frank Prophet Jr. said that his father found out about it one Sunday evening at home with family. He said, We just got a TV set, had it about two months. We bought an antenna, and we were watching the Ed Sullivan show. He introduced them, these three young fellows, and they come on there singing Tom Dooley, and Dad squatted down in the front of the television and said, What in the... How... What's going on here? A few days later, somebody came by from a store down the road and said, Frank, you've got a call from long distance. It was a song catcher, Frank Warner. Turns out that they'd gotten a lawsuit together, which turned up a settlement with the Kingston Trio for their use and exploitation of the song. Frank Warner, Alan Lomax, and Frank Prophet Sr. all got some compensation on sales, after it had already sold 4 million copies. Nearly a century after Tom's hanging, the famous folk singer and flat picker Doc Watson grew up only a few miles away from Elkville. He played the song throughout his career and shared some of the stories in concerts and interviews about his great-grandmother, who knew both the Foster and Dula families. In 2001, the USA National Endowment for the Arts placed Tom Dooley on its list of the 365 songs of the century. The Library of Congress then admitted the Kingston Trio's version into its National Recording Preservation Archives in 2008 solidifying its place in America's musical heritage. Here's my rendition of the traditional murder ballad, Tom Dooley. Hang your head, Tom Dooley, hang your head and cry. You kid, poor old foster, poor boy, you're bound to die. By the roadside, with a beg to be excused. You left them by the roadside when I hit a closing shoes. Hang your dumb dooly, hang your head and cry. Get pulled on a foster, poor boy, bound to die. Side for to make her your wife Took her on the hillside And then you took her life Dug the grave four feet long You dug it three feet deep Pour the cold clay over her When you chopped her with your feet Then you had time to leave Hang your head and cry Keep on a foster Poor boy bound to die As long as I'm living, boys, they ain't gonna let me rest Though they're gonna hang me tomorrow, I'll be dead Never even harm to hear what Portland only said Hang your head, time duly, hang your head and cry You can't pull on a foster, poor boy, you're bound to die At this time tomorrow, where do you reckon I'll be? Way down yonder in the holler, hanging from a wild tree 
Hang your head down duly, hang your head and cry. Your kid fall on a far step, poor boy, you're bound to die. Thirty years after the Civil War ended, the father of ragtime guitar, Arthur Blind Blake, was born in Newport News, Virginia, sometime in 1896, according to his death certificate. Blind from birth, Blake's childhood and adult life is mostly a mystery. His story is shaped by interviews, rumors, and the music that he recorded. He was raised in Jacksonville, Florida, and according to Paramount Records, Early on, Blake listened to talented pianists and studied ragtime earnestly, teaching himself the rhythmic piano parts on guitar. It's said that he moved to Georgia in his late teens and began to make a living as a street performer on corners. Soon, his musical prowess grew into a wandering songster, traveling throughout the South, performing in minstrel and medicine shows, at house parties, fish fries, suppers, and cakewalks. In 1921, while living in a shack in Bristol, Tennessee, he collaborated with blues guitarist Bill Williams for about four months, and they played some shows together. A year or so later, Kate McTell said that her husband, Blind Willie McTell, brought Blake to Atlanta from Florida, where he stayed for a few years. Many people have reported seeing and hearing Blake in places from Florida to Ohio, and interviews with musicians who knew Blake only hinted that he was quite the lush, full-fisted on a regular basis with a guitar and hard liquor in hand. Regardless, he earned himself a reputation across the region as the pioneer of ragtime guitar. Through Blake's travels, word about his playing spread to the attention of record company scouts, who were on a search to sign male blues artists during the mid-1920s after unexpectedly strong sales from Blind Lemon Jefferson. The man with the famous piano-sounding guitar was brought to Chicago and signed by Paramount Records. His first gig during the summer of 1926 was backing guitar for Layola B. Wilson's Lazy Vaudeville Blues. Blake settled in the Windy City that summer, living in an apartment at the corner of 31st Street and College Grove Avenue. On many Monday evenings, his flat turned into a swinging music destination, where some of the South Side's finest bluesmen would gather and egg each other on and jam. One of the regulars was jazz and blues pianist Little Brother Montgomery, who said about these gatherings, We called them rehearsals. We'd all get together over at Blake's place. There would also be a few piano players there, Charlie Spann sometimes, Roosevelt Sykes, guitar players like Blake and maybe Tampa Red or Big Bill Brunzi. We'd drink moonshine and trade songs. Everyone was just like family. A month after he was signed, Paramount moved him to a solo artist feeding the growing demand for race music that was initially sparked by Mamie Smith, Ma Rainey, and Bessie Smith at the start of the 1920s. At the time, Paramount artists accounted for 25% of the race records that were sold. His first release had a B-side called West Coast Blues, a huge instrumental piece that you're listening to right now, which established him as Paramount's next solo blues star, second to Lemon Jefferson. Less than six months after he started at Paramount, he was playing on Ma Rainey sides like Morning Hour Blues, Little Low Mama Blues, and Grieving Hearted Blues. Blake became quite busy over his six years with the record company, in the studio in Chicago throughout the year, then often returning back to Florida in the winter. He was a first call session player, being featured on hit records by all the Paramount legends, including Papa Charlie Jackson, Gus Cannon, and Ida Fox, and many others. Along with Lemon Jefferson, he was one of the first black guitarists to make a commercially successful record. 
and his success led other record companies to seek out more blind blues artists. Blake may have earned up to $50 a side, about $650 in today's money, and he recorded nearly 80 solo sides for Paramount, becoming one of their best-selling artists. That's all. By 1930, Blake's playing and singing had noticeably deteriorated. He'd been drinking too much for too long, and had mostly lost the special edge that he had on guitar. Despite that, the well-known vaudeville show Happy Go Lucky featured Blake around the country during 1930 and 1931. Afterwards, Paramount, like many record companies during the Great Depression, was struggling, but had Blake back in the studio to record an old standard called Champagne Charlie Is My Name and Depression's Gone For Me Blues, which has the melody and lyrics from Sitting On Top Of The World. Many musicians, including the well-known guitarist Stefan Grossman, questioned whether or not it was actually Blake on both sides of the record. Even though it says his name on the label, Depression's Gone For Me Blues sounds like him, whereas Champagne Charlie sounds like somebody else. Either way, that session turned out to be his last as falling record sales led to Paramount going bankrupt in 1932. After that, Blake went down south somewhere, and he was never heard from again. Rumors circled that he was violently murdered, or was hit by a streetcar, or that alcohol did him in, though many believe he died shortly after returning south. His life after recording with Paramount, like his childhood, was a mystery. That was up until a man from the Netherlands stepped in. I woke up this morning a Dutch researcher named Alex van der Took has become known as the specialist for unearthing documents about Paramount Records and the artists that they represented. When he got wind of some documents and a death certificate in Milwaukee for Blind Blake, he sent a local musician and composer named Angela Mac Riley to retrieve it in 2013. According to the documents, Arthur had married a woman named Beatrice McGee in late 1931 and relocated to Wisconsin to live in a neighborhood of Milwaukee called Brewer's Hill, near Paramount headquarters, likely the company's doing before they folded. He had trouble finding more work as a musician and recording afterwards because he became very ill with a severe lung disease, spending a substantial amount of time in the hospital with pneumonia. In his final months, he was much too sick to perform, and he never recovered. On December 1st, 1934, after three weeks of declining health, his wife Beatrice called for an ambulance. Blake would die on the way to the hospital, the cause of death listed as pulmonary tuberculosis. He passed away at the age of 38, though up until these findings, nobody knew where he was buried. The death certificate showed that his remains were close by, at Glen Oak Cemetery in Glendale, Wisconsin. When she got there, it wasn't clear where. After some searching and many phone calls, she eventually found his plot next to his wife's, where the ground was swampy and had a large bush growing over the burial site, with no headstone. When word spread to Blind Blake admirers that his burial grounds were finally discovered, people from all over the world donated to clean it up and give Blake a proper headstone. Carved in was his photo, and father of ragtime guitar, and now many people visit the site to play music or to pay homage to him every year. Though there are many holes in Arthur Blind Blake's story, and we only have one photo of him, his legacy has longevity thanks to his recordings. 
He was more than a bluesman. He used a three-finger picking technique with walking basses, syncopated thumb rolls, and cross rhythms with a swinging beat that could be danced to, like a full boogie-woogie band. He was inventive, and nearly all of his songs have a twinge of humor in the lyrics, sometimes darkly comical. He created the standard for the genre that we now call Piedmont blues, which spread in popularity around the southeast thanks to his early recordings. The Reverend Gary Davis, who studied Blake's 78s while growing up, and was never one to hand out praise lightly, said, I ain't yet beat Blind Blake on the guitar. I like Blake because he plays sportly. Unfortunately, Blake didn't have a protege to pass on his teachings, and few, if any, guitarists have been able to match his playing. His records inspired the likes of Blind Boy Fuller, Yorma Kaukunen, John Fahey, Leon Redbone, and Blind Boy Paxton, along with many aspiring guitarists around the world. Here's an attempt at Arthur Blind Blake's Diddy Wah Diddy, first recorded in 1929. Tell me what did he want, did he means I went out and I walked around Somebody yelled, hey, look who's in town Oh, did he want, did he Yes, did he want, did he I wish somebody tell me what did he want, did he means Baby, now give me some more of your diddy wah diddy. Your diddy wah diddy. I wish somebody tell me what diddy wah diddy means. Somebody tell me what did he want, did he means About the same time that Blind Blake started making a living on the street corners in Georgia, a thousand miles away in Okima, Oklahoma, 
Woody Woodrow Guthrie was born the third child of Charles and Nora Guthrie on July 14, 1912. A few weeks before, Woodrow Wilson, then governor of New Jersey, was nominated as a Democratic candidate before being elected president in November of 1912. Woody said, My father was a hard, fist-fighting Woodrow Wilson Democrat, so Woodrow Wilson was my name. Charles Guthrie was a cowboy of sorts, active in local politics, real estate, and was thought to be a member of the Ku Klux Klan during a time when they nearly had total control over the state of Oklahoma. He taught Woody Western songs, Indian songs, Scottish folk tunes, and to never be bullied. Nora Guthrie, his mother, was a piano player who, from memory, sang the songs that had been passed through generations of family. The tales taught him, as Woody put it, the history of the Oklahoma region, its weather, cyclones, pretty women, love affairs, outlaws, disasters, and hopes for the better world that's coming. Woody would then run off and act out the songs that she sang as a child. She taught social awareness and folk music, and was the resource from which Woody learned not only a vast amount of melodies, but the importance of music. Woody's entire life was filled with enormous and seemingly impossible tragedy, starting in his childhood. The first of several tragic fires happened when his family's house burned down, nearly a month after it was completed. At just six years old, his older sister Clara got into an argument with their mother Nora and set her clothes on fire as a protest, intending to put them out quickly, but the flames engulfed her and she died. At the time, Nora was unknowingly suffering from Huntington's cholera, a little-known disease which essentially results in the loss of control over mind and body, and it's fatal. Her moods, behavior, and temper grew more and more disturbing for the entire family, who couldn't make sense of it since the disease wasn't identified. The loss from this early trauma hardened his heart, though it also led Woody to find creative outlets to ease his mind. One of Woody's earliest musical memories was hearing what he called a Negro minstrel jazzy band blowing and tooting and pounding drums up and down our street, which inspired him to sing out the first song I ever made up by my own self. When he was about 13, he discovered the blues while walking to school. In his memoir, Bound for Glory, he recalls, there was this little Negro shine boy that worked in a barber shop on my road to school. He was all raggedy and old baggy overalls. He was blowing a long, lonesome blues on the harmonica called Rain Crow. I saved nickels, dimes, sold bottles, toe sacks, missed a lunch or two, and bought me a harmonica. I would set out on the heavy platform back of the Creek Trading Company, a grocery store next door to Jinx Barbershop, and play alongside George, the shine boy. It was a pretty empty-looking town when George lost his job at the shop, but I played his songs, and they made me walk slow and think about things. His family moved away somewhere, and I never run across him again. Go to sleep, you weary hobo. In 1920, oil was discovered near Okima, and as with many other places like it, the small farm town seemed to transform overnight, bringing thousands of workers, well-to-dos, gamblers, and hustlers. Charles was a savvy businessman, and the oil boom moved his family into the upper middle class, at one point owning up to 30 plots of land and the first locals to purchase an automobile. Just a few years later, however, the oil suddenly ran dry, and Okima went through an economic crisis, leaving the townsfolk busted, disgusted, and not to be trusted, as Woody said. The early 1920s devastated the Guthries, and by 1927, a few bad real estate deals led to Charles losing all the properties that they owned, 
while Nora's disease led her to throwing a kerosene lamp on him while he was sleeping. Charles survived, but he was severely burned, and a few days later, Nora was put into the Oklahoma hospital for the insane. After being hospitalized for his burns, and now in the early stages of the Great Depression, Charles was forced to repay his debts from lost real estate deals by finding work in Pampa, Texas, a town experiencing its own oil boom where his sister lived. He sent the younger children to live with her, leaving 16-year-old Woody and his older brother Roy on their own in Okima for a bit. Woody worked odd jobs around town, honed his skills as a musician by busking in the streets for food or money with his harmonica, and traveled around and visited relatives in the Gulf and essentially lived a hobo's life in the summer of 1929. This was the beginning of a rambling tendency that would follow him through the years to come and shape his social conscience, which helped make his songs and missions so legendary. Unable to overcome Huntington's, Woody's mother passed away in 1930 while still in the mental hospital. Soon after, his father Charles sent for Woody to join the family in Texas. Pampa was fertile ground for Woody to start fostering his growing talents, though not initially. He didn't do well in his senior year of high school there, skipping classes and eventually dropping out before graduation. He became friends with a local librarian at City Hall and would spend a full day reading about Abraham Lincoln, history and poetry. One day, Woody walked into Harris Drugstore, which today is home to the Woody Guthrie Folk Music Center, where he saw a guitar. The owner, Shorty Harris, said that if he learned how to play the guitar, he could have it. Woody ended up getting a job there, stocking soda, and he learned enough to acquire the guitar and started writing new lyrics to some old songs there. Woody also started the first of many pages of his memoir, Bound for Glory, on his typewriter, and took a proper course on drawing cartoons, which he already had a natural talent for. He made some money painting signs, and started his first music group with two locals, called the Corn Cob Trio. His first radio appearance advertised a barn dance that the trio was performing, and they began regularly performing at dance halls in the area. In 1933, at 21, Woody got married to his bandmate's sister, Mary Jennings, and they had three children, Gwen, Sue, and Bill. Two years later, everything changed when a massive dust storm came. Such a huge black cloud, just looked like smoke out of a train stack or something. I just come rolling over, and when it got near to the house, we was all afraid, and we ran into the storm house. Our house was sealed, but that dust come through somehow. And the old timers said they'd never seen nothing like that. I just blowed in and I got them dust bowl blues. The infamous Dust Bowl was a severe dust storm that came over the drought-stricken Great Plains on Black Sunday, April 14, 1935. It hit the small town of Pampa, Texas hardest in the area. Woody remembered holding a wet rag over his mouth as all around him, houses filled with dust and car engines and cattle choked to death. Woody left his wife and children that year to join the thousands of Okies desperate farmers and unemployed workers from Oklahoma, Texas, Kansas, Tennessee, and Georgia, migrating west in search of work to support their families. Like all the other Dust Bowl refugees, as they came to be called, Woody traveled along Route 66 by hitchhiking, walking, hopping on freight trains, and taking whatever small jobs that he could, singing for his supper on occasion. In exchange for room and board, Woody painted signs and played guitar and sang in saloons along the way. He also performed in the hobo and migrant camps and began to identify with the dispossessed and disenfranchised. With his guitar and harmonica, he grew politicized and developed into a musical spokesman for labor rights, giving rise to songs of social criticism. 
1937, Woody got a daily radio gig in California, performing old-time folk music on KFVD Los Angeles, along with a new singing partner named Maxine Lefty Lou Chrisman. The show attracted widespread public attention, particularly from the migrants living under tin shacks and camps and the Okies who settled in the area. The show also had what Woody called his corn-pone philosophy, a comedy segment where he'd tell stories in the persona of a backwoods hillbilly. Woody also used the platform as a conduit to advocate for truth, fairness, and justice. He'd speak off the cuff about corrupt politicians, lawyers, and businessmen, and spread awareness of union organizers that were fighting for the rights of migrant workers. At the radio station, Woody met a politically savvy newscaster who introduced him to a group of socialists and communists in Southern California, as well as an actor and activist named Will Gear, who would open important doors down the line. Throughout his life, Woody was associated with the Communist Party, despite never being an actual member. He was considered a fellow traveler, an outsider who agreed with the platform of the party, just didn't strictly follow their disciplines. Around this time, he started writing a column called Woody Says for the communist newspaper People's World, which also included a small comic that was drawn by him. The column wasn't too political, but he didn't shy away from his feelings about current events. The column wasn't too political, but he didn't shy away from sharing his feelings about current events. At the outbreak of World War II, when the Soviet Union signed an agreement with Germany in 1939, the owners of KFVD Radio were not comfortable with Woody's communist associations, and they fired him. Unable to find more work, he went back to Mary and the children in Pampa, Texas. She was happy to have him back, but Woody was restless, unfulfilled back in the small town, until an invitation to New York City from Will Gear showed up, and Woody jumped at the chance to head east. I was standing down in New York town one day. In March of 1940, Woody arrived in the Big Apple and stayed at Will Gear's apartment on the couch. Soon after, he performed at a Grapes of Wrath evening, a benefit to raise money for migrant and agriculture workers. Other acts in the bill included Lead Belly, Pete Seeger, and Aunt Molly Jackson. Woody also met Alan Lomax there, who at the time was the assistant director of the Archive of Folk Song at the Library of Congress. Afterwards, Lomax invited Woody to stay for a few weeks with him and his wife in Washington. Woody made his first recordings with Lomax there, several hours of conversation and 29 songs. In April 1940, Woody and Seeker, who hit it off at the benefit show, moved into a Greenwich Village loft together. Victor Records was looking to counter the successful signing of folk singer Burr Lives by Columbia Records. In May, Lomax got Victor to produce a two-album, 12-song release of Woody's Dust Bowl Ballads. They didn't sell well, though they represented a piece of history that became much more important down the line. Afterwards, Woody and Pete made a quick trip down to Texas to visit the Guthrie family. When the Oklahoma cowboy returned, he was embraced for his musical and personal authenticity by leftists, artists, writers, progressives, and intellectuals. He also had a host of new folk and blues admirers that became good friends and legends in their own right, including Lead Belly, Cisco Houston, Sonny Terry, Brownie McGee, and Josh White, among many others. Woody took a guest spot on CBS's radio program Back Where I Come From that led to a hosting gig for a program called Pipe Smoking Time from the Model Tobacco Company. Woody was paid $180 a week, which is just over $3,000 in today's money. That was more than enough to bring Mary and the children to New York where the family lived in an apartment on Central Park West. Soon after, though, Woody came to realize that he'd fallen for the carrot dangling in front of him. 
The show was driven by commercialism. It got more and more tightly structured and had no room for spontaneity. He quit after the seventh show, when he was told what to sing. Having a bad taste in his mouth from the New York entertainment industry, he wrote, I got disgusted with the whole sissified and nervous rules of censorship on all my songs and ballads. He packed up Mary and the children in a new car and headed west to California. Green Douglas fir where the waters cut through Down her wild mountains and canyons she flew in 1941, after a brief moment trying to get his job back at the old radio station in Los Angeles, Woody was offered a 30-day contract to write songs for the Bonneville Power Administration in Oregon about the Columbia River for a film about a new dam that was being built. He wrote 28 tunes, released as Columbia River Songs, and the film Columbia was completed in 1949. At the end of his month in the Pacific Northwest, Woody received a letter from Pete Seeger inviting him to join the Almanac Singers a budding new folk group which Pete had formed since Woody left. This news exhausted Mary, who was uprooted twice now, and she told Woody to go without them. They officially divorced two years later, in December of 1943. Back in New York, Woody started focusing on the Almanac Singers, a loosely defined folk protest group of musicians who shared songwriting credits. Initially, Woody helped write what they called peace songs, but after Hitler's invasion of the Soviet Union, they wrote anti-fascist songs. The group put on energetic performances, inviting the audience to join in singing and taking the best of black and white string band music. They wore street clothes, which was unheard of, as entertainers normally dressed in formal attire. The Almanacs played parties, benefits, union meetings, and on May Day of 1941, they performed at a rally in Madison Square Garden of 20,000 transit workers who were on strike. In January of 1942, Woody began courting a dancer named Marjorie Mazia, who shared his political activism and fostered his creativity. Over the next year, Marjorie found herself pregnant, and not with her current husband. Despite her affection for Woody, she returned to her husband for comfort and security, though promised that she'd find him after the child was born. She eventually divorced and came back to Woody with a daughter named Kathy, and they were married in 1945. Woody's memoir, Bound for Glory, an autobiographical account of his Dust Bowl years, was published in 1943, receiving critical acclaim. Woody was so against fascism that he joined the U.S. Merchant Marine during World War II. He served as a messman and dishwasher on several voyages during the Battle of the Atlantic. He also composed hundreds of anti-Hitler and pro-war ballads that he'd sing to shipmates, such as All You Fascists Bound to Lose, Talking Merchant Marine, and The Sinking of Reuben James. Later that year, he recorded his most famous song, This Land is Your Land, written four years earlier as a response to God Bless America being overplayed on the radio. Woody used the melody from an old gospel song called Oh My Loving Brother, which he had learned from listening to the Carter family's version that they renamed When the World's on Fire. Loving mother, when the world's on fire, don't you want God's bosom to be your pillow? In 1945, after the Merchant Marines, Woody was enlisted by the Army to write songs about the dangers of venereal diseases, which were published in the brochures that they gave to sailors. After getting married to Marjorie on a leave of absence, he was discharged the next month. When the war was over, they moved into an apartment in Coney Island, New York. Woody started writing children's classics like Don't You Push Me Down, Ship in the Sky, and How'd He Do. He wrote on topics that kids valued in a language that they could understand, becoming an innovator of children's songs. 
1947, around the time of her fourth birthday, faulty electric wiring started a fire that spread through his daughter Kathy's bedroom and killed her. Later that year, Marjorie gave birth to their second child, an eventual heir of Woody's legacy, Arlo, followed by Jody and Nora. Don't you push me, push me, push me. Don't you push me down. By the late 1940s, the effects of Huntington's increased drastically, and Woody's presence was increasingly difficult for his family. From 1949 to 1952, Woody traveled around, at first encouraged by Marjorie, and then when things got more tense, she insisted. Woody could be dangerous at times, and forced Marjorie to call the police more than once. She suggested that he return to California without her, and they eventually divorced. When he got back to California, Woody lived in a theater owned by Will Gear that had many other blacklisted performers during the Red Scare, waiting out the anti-communist pushback. Soon, Woody came to meet Annika Van Kirk, who was both 20 years younger and married. After a short time, Woody moved in with the couple until they ran off together and got married themselves. In the late 1950s, his friend, writer, and activist, Stetson Kennedy, let the couple stay on his land in Fruit Cove, Florida, called Belutha Hatchie, where they briefly lived in a bus. One night, a gasoline can being used to start a campfire exploded, and Woody burned himself really badly. Though he regained movement, he wasn't able to play the guitar again. I'll take you to a place called Italian As always, Woody kept writing, and in the summer of 1954, he traveled the country one last time before moving back to New York. Soon, Woody's eighth child, Lorena Lynn, would be born. The progression of Huntington's threw him into extremely intense states. He'd been hospitalized often, mistakenly diagnosed and treated for alcoholism and schizophrenia until he was picked up for vagrancy in New Jersey. He was admitted at Greystone Psychiatric Hospital, where it was finally determined that he had Huntington's, the same disease that his mother died from. Annika grew tired of caring for and dealing with Woody's moods, and their marriage collapsed. She filed for divorce and left in 1956, and arranged for their daughter, Lorena Lynn, to be adopted. Lorena had no contact with her parents for the rest of her life, and she died in a car accident in 1973 when she was 19. Woody led one of the most tragic lives of any famous American and suffered a serious depression from his grief. Five of his children passed away before him. Lorena, Kathy, his son Bill from his first marriage, who had an auto train accident at 23, and two daughters from his second marriage, Gwendolyn and Sue, who both died from Huntington's disease at the age of 41. Hey, hey, Woody Guthrie, I wrote you a song. The final 13 years of his life were spent living in the hospital. Family and friends would visit and care for him, mainly Woody's second wife, Marjorie, and their children, who came regularly. As Woody faded, the folk music world was on the rise. Joan Baez, the Greenbrier Boys, Phil Oaks, and many young folkies came to the hospital and played songs to Woody. One in particular was a 19-year-old fan named Bob Dylan, who was channeling Woody during the early 60s and moved to New York City to meet him. He once said of Woody's music, the songs themselves were really beyond category. They had the infinite sweep of humanity in them. By 1965, Woody was unable to speak. On October 3, 1967, after two decades of battling with Huntington's disease, Woody Woodrow Guthrie passed away. Because Woody had such a high profile, his death helped raise awareness of the disease, though there's still no cure today. This land is your land, and this land is my land, from California to the New York Island. 
Woody's legacy fueled generations that would push some of the most dramatic social changes of the century. Despite his achievements, Woody was a modest creative that downplayed praise and was never a concert artist, strictly performing for union rallies, benefits, and small groups. He was also a prolific painter and sketcher who could do impressionism, freeform, and character drawings of the people that were in his songs. He once said, if you want to learn something, just steal it. That's the way that I learned from Lead Belly. One time in 1944, Woody recorded 75 songs in a one-day session for Moses Ash of Folkways Records. Of the thousands of songs that he wrote, only a fraction were documented by microphone, and most remain lyrics on a page that have been preserved at the Woody Guthrie Center in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Opened in 2013, not far from where Woody was born, the center holds the largest collection of Woody Guthrie possessions and memorabilia in the world. One could argue that the man who scribbled, This Machine Kills Fascists on his guitar, was the most influential American folk musician in this country's history. Here's my take on Woody Guthrie's Ramblin' Around, originally recorded in 1949 for the Columbia River Project, inspired by a version by blues and folk singer Barbara Dane. city rambling round your town and I never see a friend I know as I go rambling around boys as I go rambling around my sweetheart and my parents when I left in my hometown well I'm out to do best I can As I go rambling around Boys As I go rambling around mm-hmm. The peach trees are They are bending down And I pick them all day for a dollar As I go rambling around Boys, as I go rambling around Sometimes the fruit gets rotten When it falls upon the ground And now there's a hungry mouth for every peach As I go rambling around I go rambling around Well, I wish that I could marry Maybe I could settle down Yeah, but I can't save a penny, no As I go rambling around Boys, as I go rambling around When my mother prayed that I would be A man of some renown Yeah, but I am just a refugee 
episode and all others are made possible by the community on patreon if you're enjoying the show for as little as five dollars a month you can help this independent program create a season two please visit patreon.com slash american songcatcher for more details that's patreon.com slash american songcatcher heard my mammy say to my pappy let's call him john henry brown walk on Around the time that the oil was drying up in Okima, Arthel Lane, or Doc Watson, was born the sixth of nine children in Stony Fork, North Carolina, on March 3, 1923. At birth, Doc had a defect in the blood vessels to his eyes, which soon developed into an infection, losing his vision before his first birthday. Raised in Deep Gap, North Carolina, his parents brought up a family of hymn singers, fiddlers, banjo players, as did generations before. His family lineage traces back to a Scottish pioneer who homesteaded 3,000 acres in North Carolina around 1790 named Tom Watson, who also brought folk songs and ballads that would be passed down through the family. Because of similar migrations, Western North Carolina has long been recognized as having the richest history of old-time music. It's no wonder that the English song collector Cecil Sharp got his biggest harvest there. Doc grew up in a time when the Carter family and Jimmy Rogers were making waves over the radio, and records started being sold to the demographics in the countryside. His mother would sing old-time songs and ballads around the house during the day, and while tucking her children into bed at night. Doc's father was a farmer and a day laborer who led folks into song at the local Baptist church. His first memory of music was when he was about two or three, sitting on his mother's lap and hearing people singing with pure voices together in church. No vibratos, Doc said, just good, straight harmonies. He always felt a connection with music, so much so that as a toddler, whatever he could find that had a musical tone, be it a pot or a cowbell, he would tap on it just to see what it sounded like. When he was six or seven, the family got a wind-up Victrola, as well as a stack of records from his uncle. Around age six, Doc started playing the harmonica and was given a new one every year in his Christmas stocking. If he was dedicated enough, sometimes he'd get one halfway through the year. To play straight country harmonica was like whistling, he says. It just became a natural part of me. Dad made me a little homemade banjo, fretless, and it didn't look quite as pretty and shiny as this one. And the first tune I ever heard him play on it was a tune that he called Ramblin' Hobo. Doc's father built his first stringed instrument for him with a catskin head on it. He taught Doc the principles of playing fretless banjo, and the rest was trial and error. When he was 10, Doc entered the Governor Moorhead School for the Blind in Raleigh, North Carolina, where he was exposed to classical music and big band jazz. He also discovered the legendary gypsy jazz guitarist, Django Reinhardt, about whom Doc said, I couldn't figure out what the devil he was doing, he went so fast on most of it, but I loved it. When Doc was about 13, a friend from school taught him the basic G, C, and D chords on guitar. Back at home, one morning his father heard Doc trying to play a guitar that his brother Lenny borrowed from a neighbor. 
Doc's father said if he learned just one song by the time he got back from work, he would take him down to Wilkesboro and help him buy a guitar with whatever was in his piggy bank. He didn't know that Doc had already learned a few chords at school, so it took no time for him to be able to play and sing along to the Carter family's When the Roses Bloom in Dixieland. That Saturday, Doc went home with a $12 Stella guitar and opened a path that would transform not only his life, but decades of aspiring guitarists to come. When the roses bloom in Dixieland, I am coming back to you. Around 1936, his Stella guitar in hand, Doc and his brother Lenny started learning to play the old-time mountain music that they knew growing up, in addition to the songs that they heard on the Grand Old Opry radio. Doc said, The banjo was something I really liked, but when the guitar came along, to me that was my first love in music. Doc was just strumming the guitar initially, until he began teaching himself some lead by listening to Maybell's famous Carter scratch from the old Carter family tunes, using a thumb pick. After he got confident with that, he started listening to Jimmy Rogers closely and thought that he must be using a flat or a straight pick. He changed and figured that he could play the Carter family tunes much better with a flat pick. At 17, Doc upgraded to a silver tone guitar that he paid for himself by working a crosscut saw at a local tannery. That job and skill set was attributed to his father, who gave him the feeling of usefulness as a blind boy, putting him to work early on, which rolled over to his confidence in playing music. Doc fell in love with a Martin guitar at a music store in Boone, North Carolina, around 1940. The store owner let him make payments on it, with an agreement that it would be paid off in the next year. He started walking or hitching rides to play music in the streets of Boone to make extra money. He'd set up and busk at a cab stand, sometimes making as much as $50 in a day, and the guitar was paid off in four or five months. Doc gained some popularity from these street performances, and invitations to play at some amateur contests, fiddlers' conventions, and local radio stations opened up. When he was about 18, Doc was playing with another local musician at a radio show that was being broadcasted remotely from a furniture store in Lenore, North Carolina. For some reason, the announcer decided that Arthel was too long of a name and suggested that they think of something easier to call him. A young woman in the audience yelled out, Call him Doc! And the name he came to be called for the rest of his life was born. That same year, Doc traveled across the mountain to play music with an old-time fiddler named Gaither Carlton. There, he was introduced to Carlton's daughter, Rosalie, who was 10 at the time, and he didn't think much of it. Six years later, however, the Gaither family moved a half mile down the road from the Watsons. One day, he went over, and as he recalled, Rosalie and a neighbor girl were unpacking dishes. She turned around and said, Hello, I haven't seen you in a long time. Somebody might as well have hit me with a brick. I lost it. I thought, where have I been all these years? There she is. Doc and Rosalie were married in 1947. Two years later, in 1949, their son Eddie Merle Watson was born, named after the country music singer Eddie Arnold and the influential guitarist Merle Travis, followed by their daughter Nancy Ellen in 1951. Doc was tuning pianos to keep food on the table for his family until in 1953, when he got an opportunity playing electric lead guitar in a country and western string band called Jack Williams and the Country Gentlemen. The group had a regular gig at the American Legion Club in Boone, and the dance halls that hired usually wanted the band to do a square dance set, which by tradition needs a fiddle. 
Well, 90% of the time, Jack's band did not have a fiddle player, but he'd heard Doc fooling around with a few fiddle tunes on the guitar and suggested that Doc learn how to play them on his electric guitar. Over the eight years that he played with the group, Doc developed the ability to flat pick on tunes like Black Mountain Rag, which is what you're hearing now, Old Joe Clark, and Sugarfoot Rag. It was as close as he could get after a failed attempt at learning the actual fiddle when he was 18. Doc often said, There's never been nothing prettier than the old time fiddle music and ballads, and nothing ever will be. As the folk boom was blossoming around 1960, a musicologist named Ralph Rinsler came to North Carolina to record Clarence Tom Ashley, who since the 1920s has been documented for carrying old time music into America's conscience. Ashley asked some of the best local musicians to join for the session, including Doc, though there was just one problem. He didn't own an acoustic guitar anymore. Doc suggested that he could play his Les Paul with the volume turned down, but since the mission of the session was preservation, the electric guitar didn't feel right. Rinsler convinced Doc to borrow an acoustic from a friend, and the end product was released as old-time music at Clarence Ashley's Volume 1 on Folkways Records. Afterward, Rinsler was impressed with Doc's banjo and guitar playing, and they agreed to do a side session at the Watson home several days later, along with Gaither Carlton and more of Doc's family members. Doc and Carlton had a hard time believing that people from cities up north were interested in old-time music, which had left the fabric of mainstream America in World War II. A year after those sessions, Doc, Carlton, Tom Ashley, and a few neighbors made the trek to Greenwich Village in New York City to perform a concert that was sponsored by an organization called Friends of Old Time Music, aiming to bring traditional music to feed the folk revival. That performance was a doorway into a bright future. He later said that one of the most rewarding things in his life came true that night, when he saw people and emotions and tears from those good old ballads and songs. Rinsler encouraged Doc to start performing as a solo act, and not long after he began playing the coffeehouse circuit. Doc only had experience playing in front of strangers at fiddle conventions, where people took swigs of moonshine and things were typically more rowdy. The first concert on the college circuit that he played scared him to death, because they were so incredibly quiet. He was nearly 40, and his career boost would launch him into performances at Newport Folk Festival, Carnegie Hall, and even the White House. Rinsler also paired Doc with the father of bluegrass, Bill Monroe, for a string of shows where the two pickers traded solos and recreated the sound of the old Monroe brothers with their harmonies. Early on in Doc's solo career, Ralph Rinsler would join him on tours. Later, when Rinsler was more involved with other matters, Doc would travel to shows alone by bus, and touring started to become difficult, even a burden. He later told the Washington Post, For a green countryman not really used to the city, it was a scary thing to come to New York and wonder, will that guy meet me there at the bus station? And will the bus driver help me change buses? And all that stuff. People not knowing that you're blind and stepping on your feet. It's scary. By 1964, though, Doc's life on the road changed drastically when his son Merle started to join him on stage. Merle, if you had to, if you ask him who his uh, favorite musician was, it, it would be, there would be two people. It would be his grandfather, Gaither Carlton, and then the late John Hurt. And John Hurt? Well, make me down a pallet on your floor. Make me down a pallet on your floor. Merle wasn't interested in playing the guitar until he was 15 years old, when he had his mother show him a few chords while Doc was on tour. Merle's skills grew exponentially from there. By the time that Doc returned, feeling drained and nearly ready to quit, Merle played for him. And overjoyed, he said, 
Son, you're going to California with me. The first time Earl went on stage with Doc was at the Berkeley Folk Festival in June of 1964, and he'd only been playing guitar for three months. The first album that Merle played on was just five months after that, titled Doc Watson and Son. In his first few years, Merle stuck to the rhythm and only went out with Doc on the weekends and when school was out during the summer. After high school, Merle was touring and recording with Doc full-time. With Merle on the road, Doc's career took off. While Merle had been listening to his father play throughout his life, he didn't try to recreate Doc's style, as he had one more generation of musical influences and interests to make his own. Merle loved country blues and delta blues, and some of his first influences were Mississippi John Hurt and the lesser-known Jerry Ricks. By 1973, after listening to Dwayne Allman, Merle started learning how to play slide and became widely recognized as one of the best flat-picking and slide guitarists of his generation. Doc often said that Merle was the most talented picker in the family. In the early morning hours of October 23, 1985, Merle was restless and couldn't sleep. He decided to do some paneling on the walls of his basement. While trimming, the saw splintered off a large piece of hardwood that embedded itself into his upper arm. He grabbed the keys to his farm truck and went to his neighbors to get first aid. They got it out, and he was bandaged up, though he'd lost a good amount of blood. On the way down the steep incline of the neighbor's driveway, the tractor's brakes locked, flying over a high embankment. Tragically, Merle was thrown off, and the tractor landed on him, killing him instantly. He was just 36. Doc later said, The night before the funeral, I had decided to quit, just give up playing. Well, that night I had this dream. It was like I was in quicksand up to my waist, and I felt I wasn't going to make it out alive. Then suddenly this big, old, strong hand reached back and grabbed me by the hand, and I heard this voice saying, Come on, Dad. You can make it. Keep going. Then I woke up. Merle's friend Jack Lawrence had been filling in for him over the year before his passing and became one of Doc's consistent partners. Jack recalls, We were supposed to go out on a two-week trip the day after Merle died. I did not know what was going to happen, and of course Doc didn't either. A couple of days after the funeral, Doc called me and said, I only canceled the first week of that trip. Are you ready to go out and work? So we went back out on the road, and that's how Doc dealt with it. My heart breaks as you take your During the last few decades of his life, Doc spent less and less time on the road. He always kept one booking, though, and that was hosting the annual Merle Fest. Every April since 1988, the Merle Watson Memorial Festival, better known as Merle Fest, has been held on the campus of Wilkes Community College in Wilkesboro, North Carolina. The first year of the event, the musicians played on the back of two flatbed trucks to a crowd of about 4,000 people. Today, the event brings 75,000 enthusiastic old-time music lovers, and is considered the gold standard for bluegrass, Americana, and string music festivals. Though like Doc himself, there's a little something for everyone, and also includes folk, country blues, Cajun, Celtic, old-time, gospel, and acoustic jazz. It was an annual tradition for Doc to join the Nashville Bluegrass Band for a gospel set on Sunday morning, and on April 29, 2012, it would be his final performance. On May 21, 2012, Doc fell at his home, and though he didn't break any bones, he became very ill and was hospitalized. Eight days later, after having complications with abdominal surgery, Arthel Doc Watson passed away at the age of 89. Friends and family say that Doc remained a very humble person throughout his success and hardships. 
He lived right where he grew up, in Deep Gap, North Carolina, with his wife, Rosalie, through 60 years of marriage until the end of his life. He told interviewers that had he not been blind, he could have been an auto mechanic and just as happy, though being blind never seemed to be a handicap for him. Doc was known to rewire his house or climb up on the roof to adjust the TV antenna. He built a two-room utility building completely by himself with a handsaw and a miter box, which his music partner Jack Lawrence said, I went there and looked at it and I was just amazed. There was no way I could have built anything that looked that good. I was curious and I got a carpenter's square and started checking things out. And that whole building was just a half an inch out of square. Doc is quoted as saying, When I play a song, be it on the guitar or banjo, I live that song, whether it's a happy song or a sad song. Music as a whole expresses many things to me, everything from beautiful scenery to the tragedies and joys of life. With more than 50 albums, Doc Watson has earned several distinct honors from his vast contributions to American music. The University of North Carolina presented Doc with an honorary degree, and the North Carolina Arts Council honored his entire family with its 1994 Heritage Award. President Jimmy Carter called Doc a national treasure, and President Bill Clinton recognized him with the National Medal of the Arts, adding, there may not be a serious, committed baby boomer alive who didn't at some point in his or her youth try to spend a few minutes at least trying to learn to pick a guitar like Doc Watson. Doc also received the National Heritage Fellowship from the National Endowment for the Arts, the highest national honor for a traditional artist. He won eight Grammy Awards and was honored with the Lifetime Achievement Award in 2004. Here's my rendition of Doc's take on Blue Railroad Train, written by the Delmore Brothers, and first released in 1934. Blue Railroad Train, I'm going down the railroad track. Dog on blue to listen to that old smokestack. The driver's rolling on, he's leaving me here behind. Give me back them good old days, let me ramble down the line. Now, them blue railroad train. You're leaving me here alone You're treating me good and you're treating me bad Making me think of home I hear that lonesome train I love to hear the whistle blow She's taking the sun, she's leaving the rain Making me wanna go got the blues I'm longing for company It's many miles from where I am to the only one for me Yeah, but it's so lonesome here I'm waiting for the manifest I hope that engine leave is kind enough to let me be his guest Been a good old pal to me. 
wanna go I get my transportation fee Three years before Merle Watson passed, across the mountains and into the flatland of South Nashville, Justin Towns Earl was born on January 4th, 1982. He was the son of one of America's roots music icons, Steve Earl, and his third wife of seven marriages, Carol. Justin's middle name was an honoring of Texas singer-songwriter Towns Van Zant, his father's friend, mentor, and hero, who was also Justin's godfather. Steve actually wanted his son to have his first name be Towns, but Carol wouldn't have it blaming Van Zant for a lot of the trouble that Steve still found himself deeply in, so they compromised. Those troubles followed him, and when Justin was just two, Steve left the family, a painful moment that Justin remembered, looking through some paneled glass in the door, seeing Steve get into his van and wave goodbye. Send me dead flowers by the maid. Justin didn't fall into music growing up, and Steve was a rare presence in his life after the divorce, so he lived with his mother during childhood. When he was nine, Steve bought him a guitar, though Justin just put it in his closet and let the dust settle, associating music with the reason that his family was broken up. Though he avoided playing music, you can't be raised in Nashville and get away from it entirely. His mother was a roadie, so he grew up with the guys working behind the scenes. They lived on food stamps in a dingy, rundown apartment in a neighborhood made up of hardworking people and single parents, where kids could run wild. He was Tennessee white trash, as he said, and would raise hell around the streets of South Nashville shirtless, in Umbro's soccer shorts and a pair of beat-up Air Jordans, with a shaved head and a rat tail down the middle of his back. I'm leaving you this lonesome song. After the release of Steve's first album in 1986, he was on the road often until a serious drug habit sidelined him through much of the early 90s. During one of Steve's battles with heroin, Justin moved in with him because he thought his father was going to die. He was completely out of his mind, he said. It broke my mom's heart, but I just thought it was something that needed to be done. After his father got clean in the mid-90s, Justin started getting to know his dad a bit. And though there weren't many repairs to the relationship, small musical connections began to form. He would go to Memphis for punk rock shows. He listened to metal, Dr. Dre and hip-hop, and Nirvana. In 1994, at 12, when they released the very non-punk album called Nirvana Unplugged, Justin would play In the Pines, also known as Where Did You Sleep Last Night, over and over. Steve heard the song repeating through Justin's bedroom door, and one afternoon came in and said, You know that's a Lead Belly song, right? Justin replied, No, Kurt Cobain wrote that. Steve took him upstairs and handed him a Lead Belly record. Justin's world changed right there and then. It's kind of like getting a bomb dropped on you, he said. Something about the tone and the honesty. It was just absolutely honest, heart-ripping, and I loved that about it. After hearing that, he knew he was going to do this for a living. Lead Belly was an obsession that led to Woody Guthrie, and to the blues of Sunhouse, Lightning Hopkins, Sonny Terry, Brownie McGee, and Mississippi John Hurt. He started playing acoustic guitar with his fingers, no pick, and Steve taught him to play the So Different Blues by Mance Lipscomb by the time that Justin was 14. Before Justin was living with Steve, he was already experimenting with drugs. He was 11 the first time he got caught with marijuana, 
and had a growing addiction to opiates, as well as his first experience with heroin, just as he was hitting puberty. Around 14, Justin started writing and playing a bit more seriously, doing residencies in the competitive Nashville songwriter scene. When Steve sensed that music was taking over, he asked Justin if he planned to leave school, and he was. With the approval of his parents, the school board allowed Justin to formally quit high school in his sophomore year. Steve, clean and sober by this time, noticed that Justin's habits were beginning to seriously affect his life. As an anecdote, he asked Justin to tour with him and play guitar and keyboard in his backing band, The Dukes. The plan did not go accordingly, as the road isn't the most suitable environment to get clean, and things seemed to get worse. Justin was taking around 25 hydrocodones a day and drinking endlessly. He had a three-day blackout in San Diego that resulted in him making a rather large scene at a party that somebody was having for Steve. He would fall asleep with cigarettes in hotel rooms and burn holes in mattresses, so much that they were having to buy new ones and bedsheets everywhere that they went. Every once in a while, he'd trash a hotel room or go downstairs and drink his entire per diem on top shelf bourbon and get thrown out of the bar. The final straw was in Berlin at the Millennium Hotel, after Justin cost $10,000 worth of damage. He had blacked out with some sort of hair dye and made handprints everywhere in the room, and the hotel famously has all-white interiors. He was forever banned from Millennium Hotels worldwide after that, and Steve fired him. Around 16, right after Justin performed his first public solo gig opening for his friend and singer-songwriter Scotty Melton, he left Nashville and headed to the hills of eastern Tennessee. He intended to get himself around the culture that created the Carter family and Charlie Poole, commuting back and forth from Johnson City to Nashville with Scotty and a group of songwriters, roaming nomadically to different spots for a couple of years. All we did was get high, drink beer, chase girls, and play music, Justin said. We played music all day. When he was 17, he performed with his dad for the first time at a Thanksgiving food drive, playing a few Doc Watson songs, recalling that it was intimidating. The second time that they played together was with Guy Clark at Merlefest, this time in front of Doc Watson. He said, it scared the shit out of me. In 2000, at 18, Justin moved to Chicago, this time trying to chase down the blues of Howling Wolf and other legends. He'd been visiting the city opening for Steve at the Riviera, something that Justin only did a handful of times, and he didn't want to leave. He started doing all the little shows that he could get his hands on, and he was learning a lot about performing. Justin ended up leaving because he got in too much trouble, and all the bad things were too accessible, cheap, and strong. Lots of crack and just as much fake crack, Justin said, and he didn't feel that he had the control to be around those temptations. He landed back in Nashville, a bit aimless, but still writing and performing some songwriter at, but still writing and performing some residencies around town. He lived in a dumpy apartment above a garage, strung out, making deliveries for a crack dealer with a 45 caliber pistol tucked in his pants. After being up for 14 days straight on a coke and dope binge, Justin suffered respiratory failure and was rushed to the ER. He had many stints as an addict and survived five heroin overdoses by the time that he was 21. A few years later, he'd gotten himself together and his first release, a six song EP called Yuma, came out in 2007. The songs were written while Justin was fresh out of rehab and were received very well, putting him on the map. Things started looking up. He signed with Bloodshot Records and his debut full length, 2008's The Good Life, was released. And reviews both noted how good it sounded 
and the pleasant surprise that it was nothing like his father's music. The following year, Justin was invited along with Old Crow Medicine Show, the Felice Brothers, and Gillian Welch on board the Big Surprise Tour. His songwriting was attracting a host of talented admirers, including Grammy-winning alternative country star Jason Isbell, who played guitar in his band, and both had their television debut on David Letterman in 2010. Now six years clean and sober, just a few days into a three-month tour supporting his new record, Harlem River Blues, Justin relapsed and was arrested after destroying his dressing room and getting into an altercation with an Indianapolis venue owner over compensation. Management canceled his tour, and they sent him to rehab for the 13th time. When his contract with Bloodshot Records had run its course in 2012, he signed a deal with Communion Records, a UK label owned in part by Ben Lovett, the keyboardist of Mumford & Sons. Soon, however, the deal turned sour. Justin said they expected him to supply 30 new songs, which the label would then whittle down to a single album. Justin has often said that he never writes more than 12 songs a year and would never agree to such terms. His habits and vices continued to interfere on and off with performances and tours, putting him on the road to recovery once again. Well, the couple in the corner been going at it all night long. Now signed with Vagrant Records, in a comfortable situation where he said, it really is for a love of music right now. Justin got married to Jen Marie in 2013. A few years later, the couple moved to Oregon and had a daughter named Etta. He bought her a 9mm handgun the day that she was born because he was, quote, frightened like hell for her. His eighth and final album, The Saint of Lost Causes, came out in 2019, a broad body of work that is dominated by stories of real Americans. The songs cover communities in different corners of the country, all struggling their way through everyday life. Justin said of the songs, I was trying to look through the eyes of America because I believe in the idea of America that everybody's welcome here and has a right to be here. In March of this year, right before COVID began taking over the country, Justin announced a new tour, opening for a songwriter named Brian Fallon. He played one date, solo, in Delaware before the rest of the tour was postponed. Cole Louison of GQ Magazine, who had seen him play nearly 30 times, was there and recalled, he played five songs, three with no shirt. Any rumors of sobriety were quashed then, but Justin remained a gentleman. After asking for a drink, he stopped mid-song. I'm so sorry, he said, pointing. I didn't realize there was a child here. It's okay, said an older man in the audience. His final number was Ain't Glad I'm Leaving," a track off of his first album that he wrote as a teenager. It goes, I know right now, baby, it might seem wrong. If you don't wake up in the morning, thank your heavens that I'm gone. Justin finished the song, thanked everyone, and walked off stage, his guitar on the floor. It was the last show that Justin Townsend would ever play. I'm old enough to know slipping and sliding, feeling low. A spokesman for the Nashville Metro Police Department said that they went into Justin's apartment for a welfare check after they got a call from one of his friends who hadn't heard from him for several days. After forced entry, the investigation showed that there was no signs of struggle or foul play, but that Justin had died on August 20th, likely from a drug overdose. On August 23rd, 2020, his family announced that he had passed away at the age of 38. Justin had a thirst for knowledge about music, baseball, jewelry, and was an antique and thrift store buff who got excited about digging through the crates. He loved traditional jazz, 
not experimental jazz. After growing up relatively poor, he learned to appreciate a good suit and wore dapper outfits when he performed and was named by GQ magazine as one of the 25 most stylish men in the world in 2010. He was a lifelong Cubs fan, having attended games four and five of the World Series. He read books that would be piled up around his home of historical fiction, biographies, and the Civil War. Justin thought the idea of setting goals in the music business was ridiculous. The only goal he wanted was to be in a position by the time he was 30 where he could take care of his mother if he needed to, his girlfriend, and the people that he loved. Well, the Mississippi Delta is shining like a national guitar. For a long time, like his father, Justin believed the myth that you had to destroy yourself to make great art. His songs could be low, sad, sweet, and everything in between. They focused on the disenfranchised and the downtrodden, the oppressed and the oppressors, the hopeful and the hopeless. Justin was a disciple of the Woody Guthrie school of thinking towards songwriting, figuring that it's always better to just go ahead and tell people the truth. When asked by Rolling Stone if he thinks that Roots music acknowledgement is dwindling, Justin replied, if you get to do this for a living, you owe something to the past. It is your responsibility to carry on those traditions if you're going to use them. Here's a rendition of Justin Towns Earl's chilling Lone Pine Hill, recorded in 2008 on his debut album, The Good Life. Swear I see you in my dreams sometimes, hit up in the middle of the night. Shaking like a pistol in a young man's hand, there in the pale moonlight. Standing on the top of that lonely hill, spared by the company mines. It's my blue eyed baby with the best dress on in the shadow of a lonely pine. I'll be back for the war when the company came, these hills grew wild and free. Hide in the hollows low Away from the cool sun's heat Then they knocked down the timber And they burned out the brush To get to the riches below And when they poured out the lift The cold black ground And one pound standing alone So take me home I signed up back in 61 I'm an army of Virginia man I've been from Manassas to McConaughey All the way to Sailor's Creek Fighting for my homeland All before he is gone And all hope is lost Richmond's under siege We're digging out of five folks Waiting in the rain for Sheridan To bring us to our knees Take me home There's a strange moon hanging overhead tonight If the rain keeps coming and the creek's gonna rise With the good Lord's grace I'll make it out of this place And I'll be in your arms Come the morning light, I swear So God grant me speed and grant me forgiveness and carry me on through the night 
take me through your hills, over your rivers, away from this awful fight. Cause I ain't never known a band that's ever owned another. I ain't never owned nothing my own. So after four long years, I just can't tell you what the hell I'm fighting for. So take me home. Say a man is made out of mud. A poor man's made out of muscle and blood. Muscle and blood and skin and bones. A mind that's weak and a back that's strong. You load six. That's a wrap for episode four. You can follow American Songcatcher on Instagram and Facebook at American Songcatcher, all one word, to get frequent content about all the artists in the past and future episodes. Today's Shine a Light goes out to the folks at David Holt's State of Music. Host and four-time Grammy winner David Holt has spent his life learning and performing traditional American music and was a longtime banjoist for Doc Watson. The PBS TV series features modern masters of American roots music who dive into their stories, music history, and collaborate with David on a few tunes. Find several seasons of beautiful content with folks like Taj Mahal, Jerry Douglas, Rhiannon Giddens, Steep Canyon Rangers, Dom Flemons, and Blind Boy Paxton, filmed on location in the mountains of North Carolina. You can follow State of Music on Facebook and Instagram for extra content. This episode, as always, was made possible by the community on Patreon. If you're interested in becoming a direct supporter of the show, please visit patreon.com slash American Songcatcher. Also from Paco's Coffee, a small batch roastery based out of Jacksonville Beach, Florida, who buys their beans from farmers and co-ops who are trying to improve their land, empower their employees, and sustainably grow and harvest coffee for everyone to enjoy. Huge thanks to the Smithsonian Folkways for all of their crucial work in preserving the legacy of these artists and songs, the Library of Congress's complete National Recording Registry, archive.org and all of the effort that they put into transferring cultural artifacts into digital form, and all of the website resources that were used in this episode, which are hyperlinked in the description. Our intro song is Payday by Mississippi John Hurt from the Today album. The outro song is 16 Tons, performed by Tennessee Ernie Ford, originally written by Merle Travis. This episode was produced, researched, recorded, and distributed by myself, Nicholas Edward Williams. In the words of the late Justin Towns Earl, I think a lot of men are afraid of pretty things, and I'm not. I like pretty songs. Here's to the songs of old. May they live on forever. See you next time on American Songcatcher. To the company store.